My favorite way to unwind and dive into something more fun is June's Journey. The game lets me channel my inner detective and unlock compelling stories, strong female characters, and a mystery I want to solve. If you like true crime podcasts, it's the perfect game to play along while you listen. The Hidden Object Mystery Game will put your detective skills to the test in the roaring 1920s. You play as June Parker as she tries to solve her sister's murder and along the way uncovers family secrets. Chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Mystery, danger, romance all await you if you download the game now. I'm on chapter four and wondering how these clues will help me crack the case of who did it and why. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. If you love Snapped, Women Who Murder, you're going to love listening to true crime or mystery titles on Audible. The audio title I'm diving into again is one of my favorites to revisit, Mindhunter by John Douglas and Mark Ulshaker. Even if you think you know the details of the cases, former FBI unit chief John Douglas took on from documentaries or the scripted show, the audio title goes above and beyond in bringing you along with him in his career, trying to catch serial killers and serial perpetrators. He used psychological profiling to dive into the minds of notorious criminals. The title includes his hunt for a killer in Alaska, the Green River Killer, and so much more. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. It is the home of storytelling after all. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. That's audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. Money, power, privilege. One Texas couple had it all. She was the type of woman that she walked in the door, every man in the lobby was gonna look at her. Their marriage was very important, family was very important. They worked together, building $400,000 to $500,000 custom homes. Their business just took off. But when one of their clients falls victim to a horrific crime, the details that emerge will stun Dallas high society. It had all the characteristics of a sexual crime. She's nude, she's tied to a bed, She's strangled and she's shot. We could possibly be looking at a love triangle. The ensuing investigation will span over 10 years, four countries, and two continents. Canada to Mexico and then to Europe and ends up in France. As the pieces fall into place, they will reveal a plot so twisted, it may prove that lust is the deadliest of the seven sins. She was very sexual, and I believe she used her wiles to capture these guys' hearts. They risked everything, and some of them went back for more. October 4th, 1983. It's a little past 6 p.m. in the affluent North Dallas suburb of Richardson, Texas, when police and paramedics receive a call about a possible emergency at the home of 33-year-old Roseanne Galunas. When the police officers first got there, the door was actually a little bit ajar, and so it was easy for them to enter the house. As officers enter the home, they find Roseanne's young son frightened but unharmed. 
It just looks distraught. He's four and a half years old. He's confused. He's scared. The boy motions towards his mother's bedroom. She was found nude, face down on her bed, her arms and legs tied to the different posts of the bed. She had been strangled with a thigh-high pantyhose and a belt and shot in the back of her head through the pillow. When paramedics arrive at the scene, they find a small glimmer of hope. Roseanne has a pulse. For her to recover that would be something sort of a miracle, maybe, but we had hope. Roseanne Galunas was 28 years old when she and her husband, Dr. Peter Galunas Jr., decided to move to Texas after a lifetime of living on the East Coast. Roseanne grew up in Framingham, just a nice old New England town. She was very studious. She um, became a nurse and was a really good nurse. Peter was a physician. Um, in the ICU. He was very charismatic, and I think she just fell for him. For Peter, the move to Dallas in 1978 was the opportunity of a lifetime. UT Southwestern Medical School was expanding, and I think he saw it as a huge opportunity for himself. The couple settled in the upscale North Dallas neighborhood of Richardson, where, a year later, they welcomed a new addition to their family. Little Peter was born in 1979, which was a big surprise to Dr. Galunas because he had been told he was sterile. Following the birth of their son, Roseanne quit working to be a stay-at-home mom. She loved being a mother, but I think that she felt alone. She wasn't happy about being away from all of us, her family, uh, all the rest of her friends. On top of missing her family, Roseanne also missed Peter. He's working all the time. So he loses himself in, in his job. She hardly sees him. I think the more money he made, the more involved he was, the more involved he was, the more time he was away from home. She was just lonely. Hoping to lift Roseanne's spirits, Peter decided the couple should build their dream home. I think he thought maybe it would make her happy and it would give her something to do besides being a mom. To make their dreams a reality, Peter hired Larry and Joy Ayler to design their home. Their business was called Larry Ayler Home Construction. Larry was the one running it, and Joy, his wife, worked with him, though, and she did the interiors. The Ehlers and the Galunases were two couples enjoying the peak of success, and naturally, they hit it off. Dr. Galunas and Larry had become friends in this process. By early 1983, construction on the Galunases' new home was underway, but their marriage continued to struggle. Her marriage sort of went downhill. Peter was working a lot. It was almost like they had two separate lives. In June, Roseanne moved into a rental home on Loganwood Avenue. 
That summer, she and Peter filed for divorce, vowing to keep their son's best interests their top priority. They were going to work it out and settle it among the lawyers and come up with a parenting plan that they could both have. Then, just five months later, came the tragic events of October 4th, 1983. I was advised that we had a possible shooting and I needed to respond. When detectives arrive at the scene, they find Roseanne Galunas being rushed from the front door by paramedics. She had been shot twice in the head with a 25 automatic firearm. While paramedics work to save Roseanne's life, detectives begin processing the scene. First thing we think of is, is this a robbery? Is this a burglary gone bad? Usually, if it's going to be something like that, we're going to find uh, a window that's opened or broken or a jimmy lock or a door. None of that. The house was basically secure. While the rest of the home is largely in order, the scene inside Roseanne's bedroom leaves no doubt that something terrible had taken place there. You had four strands of rope. Uh, you had a, a robe thrown over the end of the bed. There was two pillows there. One of them clearly had blood on it, and you could see where somebody had fired rounds through the pillow. With nothing apparently missing from the home, detectives consider a more sinister motive than robbery. It had all the characteristics of a sexual crime. She's nude, she's tied to a bed, she's strangled, and she's shot, and then she's muffled for sound. Outside Roseanne's home, a crowd begins to gather. Among them is her estranged husband, Peter, who now has the couple's four-year-old son in his care. Dr. Galinas was there, and little Peter was there with him. He tells us, you know, that's Roseanne, that's my wife, we're separated. Investigators are eager to interview Peter, but not at the chaotic crime scene. I asked Dr. Galinas to come to the station for the interview. He said, well, I want my attorney present. There's a red flag going on right there. Detectives agree to meet Peter and his attorney at the police station. Before they leave, they get word that someone else is requesting to speak with them. I was advised that the victim's boyfriend had just shown up. The officer says the boyfriend identified himself as 35-year-old Dallas home builder Larry Ayler. Here we've got the husband and we've got the boyfriend, and either one of them could be involved. Coming up, a twisted love triangle is exposed. They're in the middle of this project, and all of a sudden, they're madly in love. And they both decide to file for divorce. He still has this anger. He is giving me more red flags than he's removing every time I talk to him. And detectives find themselves at odds. I was 100% convinced that Larry was the suspect. Detective Corley was 100% convinced that Dr. Glunas was the suspect. On October 4th, 1983, 
33-year-old Roseanne Galunas is barely clinging to life after being shot twice in the head. By the way, Roseanne's going to the hospital, but we want a police officer right there with her in case she does regain consciousness. Outside Roseanne's home, detectives have found themselves between two potential suspects, Roseanne's estranged husband, Peter Galunas, and her alleged boyfriend, Larry Ayler. The victim's boyfriend had just shown up. So now I was aware there was a husband and a boyfriend. We went from no suspects in the first few minutes of the investigation to all of a sudden having two suspects. You don't know anything, so that's why you want to take the boyfriend and the husband, separate them and get separate statements from them. Detectives set up simultaneous interviews with Larry and Peter. Now my job is to interview Dr. Boone and see what his involvement is, if any, in this case. Accompanied by his attorney, Peter tells detectives he'd been waiting to hear from Roseanne all afternoon. Dr. Galunas was expecting Peter to be brought over by Roseanne. He had tried to call Roseanne, had not been successful. Peter says it was around 6 p.m. when he finally received a call. He got a phone call from Roseanne's number. He picked it up and it was Peter, the boy. He's upset and he says, Mommy's sick and she can't wake up. So Dr. Galunas tells his mother, call 911, send an ambulance and police to Roseanne's house. Peter says he then rushed to Roseanne's house, but by the time he arrived, police were already on the scene. His behavior is concerning me. He still has not asked about Roseanne. I know we all handle trauma and grief in different ways, uh, but he is, his lack of concern for Roseanne, it, it disturbs me quite a bit. Next, investigators ask Peter to walk them through his day. Basically, what his statement was that he'd been at work all day, got off at 5 o'clock, and uh, went home, and at 6 o'clock, he was waiting for little Peter. There is one gap, however, in Peter's alibi. From four, about 4 o'clock to 4.45, he took a nap uh, sitting at his desk at his office. So a red flag goes off in my head about that. Was Peter really taking a nap as he claimed? Or did he leave his office to pay a visit to Roseanne? He does cooperate, but it's just one of those things as a, a detective. A lot of it is red flags, some of it is gut, uh, but I just had a bad feeling about Dr. Galunas. Suspicions continue to rise when Peter tells detectives how he had tried to confide in his friend Larry Ayler about his wife's affair. Dr. Galunas is puzzled. He's worried about his wife. And he says, you know, do you think that she might be having an affair? And Larry says, no way. She's not that kind of a person. But, you know, Dr. Galunas just, something's bugging him about the way she's behaving. He had hired a private investigator, and the investigator comes back and says, you know, your wife is having an affair with Larry Ayler. 
And of course, Dr. Galunas is furious. He confronts Larry, who denies it. All the time that I'm talking to him, he still has his anger. He is uh, giving me more red flags than he's removing. Did Roseanne's affair with Larry spark a violent rage? He did not like Larry one bit, and he made that very clear to me. In a neighboring room, Detective McKenzie is learning more about Roseanne's new lover, Larry Ayler. In the early 80s, Larry and his wife, Joy Ayler, were well known for catering to Dallas's flashy upper society. Larry and Joy were building $400,000 to $500,000 custom homes in North Dallas. These are very high-end homes. And if anyone appreciated the finer things in life, it was Joy Ayler. Joy was the middle child of Francis and uh, Henry Davis, who had made quite a considerable fortune in real estate development. Joy was attractive. I mean, she was the type of woman that uh, if she walked in the door, every man in the lobby was going to look at her. In high school, Joy had her pick when it came to men. But it was Larry Ayler who won her heart. They fell in love at Hillcrest High School at a football game when she was 17 and he was 18. Following high school, Joy and Larry married. And with a little money from Joy's father, started their custom home building company. Larry took care of the construction, the, the outside, you know, the construction of the house, and Joy was the one who focused on the interiors. In 1970, the couple welcomed a son, Chris. They began to make money and to have success. They were happy. When Peter and Roseanne Galunas walked into the Ehlers' office in 1983, the couples instantly bonded. They just started having uh, a friendship. But Larry admits to detectives he and Roseanne had a different connection. At some point, he and Roseanne are having lunch together to talk about the house project. And she tells him, you know, I'm really unhappy. And Larry begins to say, well, you know, I'm really unhappy in my marriage, too. She called and she said, I'm not going to believe it, but I've met someone. Now she's telling me about Larry, who she seemed crazy about. They're in the middle of this project, and all of a sudden, they're madly in love. And they both decide to file for divorce. Larry goes into detail about his relationship with Roseanne and how they were getting serious and they even had plans to get married. But when it comes to an alibi, Larry starts throwing out red flags of his own. He tells detectives that he hoped to see Roseanne that afternoon. But when his calls to her went unanswered, he made other plans. Larry decided to go bike riding instead by himself. So suddenly, I have somebody basically tell me he doesn't have an alibi because now he's bike riding by himself. Also concerning to detectives is how determined Larry seems to pin the attack on someone else. He said he finally did. And when I asked him who he was, Dr. Glunas finally did it. 
Following the interviews, detectives convene in the hall, where they find they have an unusual problem. I was 100% convinced that Larry was the man, the suspect. Detective Corley was 100% convinced that Dr. Glunas was the suspect. With both men seemingly heavy on motives and light on alibis, detectives must dig deeper. We did believe we could possibly be looking at a love triangle. We wanted to look at the wife also. On October 5th, 1983, one day after Roseanne was brutally attacked inside her home, Joy meets with detectives at her attorney's office. She, you know, would freely say that Larry had told her about Roseanne, but she didn't say what she thought or who could have done it or anything. She was very collected, didn't hesitate at all to answer anything I asked her. Very polite, uh, almost professional in her answers. I had a pretty favorable impression of her uh, when I left that office. The next day, Investigators receive tragic news about Roseanne Galunas. She passed away. I was devastated. I mean, it's that doesn't happen to someone you know. Um, and I'm sure plenty of people who have lost people this way will say the same thing. Roseanne's death leaves detectives with a homicide on their hands and they're more determined than ever to catch her killer. They asked them to take lie detector tests, and both Dr. Galunas and Larry Ayler passed lie detector tests. Joy also passed. And soon after Roseanne's funeral, Larry and Joy got back together. He moved back in with her. They were never able to develop any direct leads or evidence to connect any of the three to the incident. There was a $25,000 reward for the indictment in Roseanne's case. After several months of following leads, basically leads became cold and they had nothing else to do but to pin the case until new evidence was established. Months turn into years with no new developments. Those close to Roseanne stay in contact with police, especially Larry Ayler. He stayed on top of wanting to know uh, how the case was progressing. Then, in June of 1986, two and a half years since Roseanne's murder, detectives get a call from Larry once again. But this time, he seems scared. I received a call from Larry saying that somebody had just shot at him. Coming up, a strange series of events puzzles detectives. Chris Ayler told his dad, Larry, that, you know what, Dad? We got a fish head in our mailbox. And this long, cold case begins to heat up. This lady calls me and says she knows who is responsible for Roseanne's death. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. 
Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation, and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. Two years have passed since the murder of Roseanne Galunas, but after an attempted shooting, her lover, Larry Ayler, is back on detectives' radar. Larry told me all the circumstances. Joey had wanted to go down and ride some horses. They, he and his friend, Don, had gone down and saddled them up and were waiting on Joey to come, and they decided she didn't come, so he decided to leave. Uh, and this is when Larry was shot at. Detectives agree that the incident is strange, but when they look into it, they find no connection to Roseanne's murder. Two more years pass, and in April of 1988, detectives hear from Larry again. Larry said, there's really strange stuff happening at Joy's house. At the time that this is all going on, Larry is not living with Joy. They've gone through a divorce. Chris Ayler told his dad, Larry, that, you know what, Dad? we got a fish head in our mailbox. Initially, you know, that was kind of strange. Then, that same month, Detective McGowan gets a mysterious phone call. It's a person saying that uh, she knows who was responsible for Roseanne's death. Amidst all the strange occurrences surrounding this case, Detectives have to wonder if this phone call is another blip on the radar. I convinced her to meet me that night, like at midnight, at a restaurant in Dallas. I sit in booth, and a fairly attractive woman comes in and walks right over and sits down across from me. She says, well, just call me Mrs. Mudd. I said, okay. What the woman says next comes as a surprise. Do you know who else I am? I said, no. And she said, well, I'm Joy Ayler's sister, Carol. Carol reveals that two years prior, her sister Joy made a shocking confession. Joy tells Carol, I think Larry killed Roseanne Galunas and I'm in danger too. I need your help to hire somebody to kill Larry. Concerned for Joy's life, Carol says she agreed to help. 
Carol meets this man that she knows that uh, Joy has hired, someone called Bill Garland, and she pays, uh, I think it was $3,000. But something unexpected happened when Carol laid eyes on Bill. She met Bill Garland, she gave him money, and she becomes infatuated with him. They ended up, you know, having almost an immediate romantic attraction and got married shortly thereafter. Carol says in the summer of 1986, Bill hired two men to assassinate her brother-in-law. Though the attempt failed, her husband later confessed to participating in another crime. He says, well, Larry didn't kill Roseanne Galunas. Your sister Joy is the one who wanted to kill Roseanne Galunas. Bill Garland was the man that Joy Ayler hired to kill Roseanne Galunas. Carol's allegations are shocking, but the more she talks, the more Detective McGowan wonders if she's telling the truth or if she's just after a payday. It became obvious she's very interested in a $25,000 reward. We can't put any stock in what this woman's saying. She's, she's a nut job. And then she stands up to leave, and you know we'll say we'll be in touch. And she says, oh, one other thing. At one point, you know, we put a dead fish head in her mailbox. But when she said that, you know, light flashes go off. Nobody knew about the fish head except McGowan and myself and a few detectives. The only way that she could know about the fish head is that she did it and that it was true. I mean, I have on the back of my neck right now the hair standing up just the way it was that night. When I heard it, it was stunning revelation. To find out if Carol's wild tale is true, detectives turn to Carol's husband and alleged hitman, Bill Garland. Morris got Garland to talk. And that was kind of the first domino to fall. Bill says in 1983, he was contacted by Carl Nasca, a local craftsman who worked with Joy Ayler and harbored a major crush on her. He was kind of infatuated with her. She was the rich socialite, and, and he was this shutter maker. And he knew Bill Garland. Bill's a huge guy, you know, 6'5", big, burly guy, and big talker. You know, so Carl, that's why he went to Bill, because, you know, he thought Bill might know somebody. I was contacted by a friend of mine named Carl Nosco. He told me that uh, he had a friend who needed some help. I said, I won't do the job, but I said, I know somebody who can have it for you, probably. I said, what is it you want done? She said, we want somebody eliminated. From there, Bill says the chain of accomplices continued to grow. Bill hired a guy named Brian Creefel, and Creefel hired a guy named Andy Hopper. Bill says he eventually received payment for his help with planning the hit on Roseanne, of which he took a cut and passed it down the line. It was $5,000. Bill took the money, and he took, I believe it was $2,000. He passed it along to Creeful, who took 1500 out, because when the money got to 
the third supposed middleman, George Anderson Hopper, it was only $1,500. Bill tells detectives that he doesn't know if Andy Hopper killed Roseanne or if he continued to pass the buck. We don't know who's on the end. We have no idea because the people that passed the money only knew who was on either side of them. That's all they knew. Bill is also candid about his involvement in the attempted shooting of Larry Ayler in 1986. And we've got to get either confessions or evidence. So it's, it's going to be a long, tough road. Coming up, detectives learn the power of lust. She has a way, I think, of drawing these men in. He had a very strong attraction to her sexually. He said that she was insatiable. She had this ability to make good men do bad things. Detectives in Dallas, Texas, have just arrested 45-year-old Bill Garland for his role in the murder of Roseanne Galunas. Ultimately, Morris went to Sulphur Springs and basically through a very good interrogation. Richardson police got Garland to talk. According to Bill, there's a laundry list of other players in this twisted murder plot, but for now, Detectives have their eye on the woman at the top, Joy Ayler. They arrested her, and she was at the Richardson Police Department all day long, and she, she would never really say anything. She said, I don't want to be here in jail. I want to go home. Within hours, Joy gets her wish and is released on $150,000 bond. With Joy refusing to talk, detectives set their sights on tracking down the last man known to have taken money for Roseanne's murder, Andy Hopper. We went looking for Andy and couldn't find him. Our investigation revealed that uh, actually his wife didn't even know where he was. After five months of tracing calls and tracking down leads, detectives finally find Andy at his cousin's house in Dallas. One of the challenges with, it, with Andy was the confession. Andy worked very hard never to tell the truth. We had to work to get the truth. After multiple grueling interrogations, Andy finally cracks. He tells detectives that on the afternoon of October 4th, 1983, he knocked on Roseanne's door, ready to carry out the hit on her. Andy Hopper bought flowers and presented himself, knocked on the door as a delivery, flower delivery man. He had a gun. He said he pushed her back into her bedroom and put her on the bed, took her robe off, and tied her to the bed. He attempts to rape her is unsuccessful and he decides he's got to he's got to end it this is when 
he uses a pillow and fires two rounds from his pistol into her head. He said, little Peter never came out of the room, never saw him, and he left. Andy tells detectives that he never knew who orchestrated the hit. The people that passed the money only knew who was on either side of them. That's all they knew. Detectives and prosecutors seek the ultimate punishment for Andy. Andy Hopper was charged with capital murder. It was a murder for hire, which made him liable for the death penalty. Based on the statements of Bill Garland and Andy Hopper, detectives want the same punishment for the person they believe masterminded the whole plot, Joy Ayler. Death penalty was on the table for her in, in Texas. With murder for hire, uh, that's a capital offense in Texas. For the next year, prosecutors prepare their case against Joy. In Joy's corner is a high-profile defense attorney named Mike Wilson. Mike Wilson was a very well-known attorney in Dallas. He had been an assistant district attorney in Dallas County. Then, in May 1990, just a week before Joy's grand jury is set to begin, authorities learn jaw-dropping news. Joy was nowhere to be found. She disappeared, and so did Mike Wilson. Then, after a month of searching, in June of 1990, detectives get a tip that Joy might be holed up in a Canadian hotel. The FBI had a trace on an attorney's home where he had received a call. We were able to trace that call to the Delta Inn in Vancouver. When authorities arrive, they find Mike alone. He tells them that Joy ditched him just a few days prior. So he goes down to the pharmacy, comes back about 30 minutes later, and, and Joy's gone. They had about $340,000 with them, $100 bill on a pillow and not even a note. She had hooked it. Police want to know why Mike had risked his entire career for Joy. He was actually in love with Joy. You had a very strong attraction to her sexually. He said that Joy was insatiable. Mike Wilson is arrested and is flown back to Texas. I think Mike was very much in love with her. Yes, I do. I think he cared for her quite a bit. I don't think she cared for him. During the past month that Joy and Mike had been on the run, investigators had learned this former interior designer had another man on the hook. Jody Packer is a person that we discovered back in the very initial part of the 1988 investigation. He was having a relationship with Joy. I always felt like Jody was always in the picture, and she was using Mike to get out of the country. Coming up, an accident brings this tawdry tale full circle. They go to the location of the accident, and a person named Elizabeth Sharp answers the door. The woman of many, many talents, but utterly without a conscience.
By 1990, the hunt for 40-year-old Joy Ayler has crossed international borders. Joy left Mike in Vancouver. She fled down through to Mexico. From Mexico, she went to Europe and ultimately finds her way into France. Detectives now believe her longtime lover, Jody Packer, is the man helping Joy stay on the run. He had been very involved helping her once she escaped and went to Mexico. And he had also disappeared. One of the reasons that I believe that Joy gets all these people to do things is she was a very attractive woman. I believe she used her wiles to capture these guys' hearts. Even after Jody Packard knew the police were on to him, he still provided credit cards or passport to help her get out of the country. Joy's flight from justice continues for several months. Then, in March 1991, eight years since the murder of Roseanne Galunis, detectives get an unexpected call from authorities about a car accident in Vence, France. They go to the location of the accident, they knock on some doors around there, and some French citizen said, yeah, the person who was driving it lives down the lane about a mile. So the police go knock on the door, and a person named Elizabeth Sharp answers the door. Ultimately, they figured out, because her fingerprints were found in the vehicle, that the woman who was living as Elizabeth Sharp at this villa was really Joy Ayler. Texas police are eager to get Joy back, but the fact that she faces the death penalty complicates her return. France will not extradite back to the United States if the death penalty's uh, an issue. Move out of the way, clear path. By 1993, prosecutors in Texas reach a deal with French authorities to take the death penalty off the table in exchange for Joy's extradition. She had a very good lawyer. He was a very tenacious fellow and fought furiously to see that uh, Joy was not extradited back to the United States. And I, I fought just as furiously to see that she was. She was ultimately extradited. For five years, as they chased her and tried to find her, you just live in limbo. And for her to be captured, it looks like very surreal. Jody Packer was finally arrested re-entering the country in McAllen. So he is charged with aiding and abetting a fugitive and a series of other crimes involving passport fraud. In August 1994, 45-year-old Joy Ayler, a woman the French press has dubbed the Devil Woman of Dallas, is led into a Texas courtroom to stand trial for the murder of Roseanne Galunas. Normally, you have one person kills another, that's all you got to prove. Here, you had to prove that the words and actions of Joy Ayler you know, resulted in the 25 automatic round that went through Roseanne's head. Prosecutors believe Joy used Carl Nasca's attraction to her to set this murder-for-hire plot into motion. Then, she roped in the love of Mike Wilson and Jody Packer to assist her escape from justice. I mean, they risked everything for her. And when it got to be joy uh, in desperate times, it was joy above all else, no matter what. 
But now, two men once under Joy Ayler's spell take the stand to testify on behalf of the prosecution. In the Ayler trial, two of the critical witnesses were Jody Packer, her lover, longtime friend, Mike Wilson, her lawyer. Packer was testifying to save his skin. She admitted to him that she had killed or put in motion uh, the chain that, that resulted in Belinda's death. And then, of course, he helped her flee a long way. But if lust drove men to do things for Joy, what did Joy have at stake? When Larry decided to leave Joy, he apparently closed the business account, and about $300,000 came out of the account, which basically left Joy with no funds. Her dad had put him in business. They had a good business. We're making good money. And Roseanne was a threat to that. So she didn't want to lose that. The prosecutor described her as a woman of many, many talents, but utterly without a conscience. On August 18, 1994, just short of 11 years after Roseanne Galunas's death, Joy is found guilty of capital murder. She is sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Joy Davis Ayler should have received the death penalty. Because of her affluence, she was able to flee authorities to several countries. I want her to stay there until the day she dies. The sad part is, I don't think she cares. I don't think there's any remorse, really. Joy thought the two things she'd always used to get her way would save her, money and sex appeal. She had this ability to make good men do bad things. Andy Hopper was found guilty of capital murder in March of 1992. He was executed in 2005. Jody Packer was convicted and served time in prison for aiding Joy Ayler. During her time as a fugitive, Mike Wilson was sentenced to 15 years in prison. He appealed his conviction and was released in 1993 after serving four years. Bill Garland pleaded guilty for his role in arranging Joy's crimes. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Carol Garland never served time for her role in this case. She and Bill Garland divorced in 1990. For more information on Snapped, go to Oxygen.com. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.